Hi, it's Rick Bicata. I'm the medical director here at the Center for Medical Education. This time, we're going to do a rebroadcast of an issue of Risk Management Monthly. This was done uh, June of 2020. It's got four of us on it. Gita Pensa is an emergency physician from Brown University. She has a blog. Uh, the focus is a support of physicians who are going through malpractice suits. She was through a two-year suit in which she prevailed, but not without some injuries. So uh, that's where she's coming from. She does a great job at it. We're also joined by Mark Calvert, a malpractice attorney from Houston who has been on our show a number of times, introduced to us by Amon Batu. He does medical board work and uh, defense work. Uh, medical malpractice defense. Uh, Greg Henry, some of you may have heard of him. Uh, he'll also be joining us and yours truly. Uh, if you are interested in finding out more about Risk Management Monthly, if you go onto our website, ccme.org, uh, you can. Uh, it, it's all explained there. There's some sample issues. You, you can see everything that we're doing. And uh, this it, uh, coming up is just a typical issue. Hello and welcome, Rick Bucata, Greg Henry, and two guests this month. We told you that uh, Mark Calvert was going to be joining us again uh, after our inability to finish a really important discussion that we got into offline. Um, and I had also invited Gita Pensa back. Uh, Gita was with us uh, maybe six months ago, but she wrote an article that was pretty compelling in ASAP Now that relates to the ethics of legal suits. And I thought, well, between Mark and, and uh, Gita, we'd have a great conversation here. So, Mark, and Gita, you notice thanks. he didn't include me, uh, <laughs> but but that's okay. I mean, I understand that uh, you, you realize, Rick, with this much talent, I really don't like having this much talent on the show because <laughs> they realize they don't need us. Listen. <laughs> you know, we. We represent what's wrong in America, you know. Go you, ahead. You could just mute your mic for the next seventy-five minutes, then. I, I don't know. <laughs> Make it. Yeah, I'll do it. Okay, so uh, we're going to start off with uh, Gita telling us. Um, well, everybody ought to know her background, so we're going to go go through that uh, briefly, and then get into the key points of the paper that she made, and uh, getting Mark's point of view on um, on it. So. Take it away, Gita. Hi, everybody. It's really nice to be back. Thanks so much. Um, so the the recent article that came out in ASAP Now is uh, basically a summary of the first uh, of two podcasts that I did about it in my Doctors in Litigation, the L Word series. And the premise of the article is that as much as we like to blame plaintiff's attorneys for unfair litigation that when you think about it, since no suit can really move forward without a physician expert to say that there is, you know, there has been malpractice, really none of these suits can go forward without a doctor's say so. And so when you think about who really is responsible for unjust litigation, I think that we have to turn uh, the lens inward and talk a lot about expert witness testimony uh, and the ethics of expert witness testimony. And um, really, 
expert witness testimony is this, you know, it's a ginormous industry. And physician experts, there are, you know, there are physicians who make a lot of money doing this every year. And certainly they are a critical part of our judicial process. There are absolutely plaintiffs who have been harmed and there have to be physicians who will stand up for them on the plaintiff's side. Um, and we can come back to this, but I, I know the feeling of wanting to sue someone. And if I had gone ahead with that, I would have really wanted a physician expert who knew what they were doing to take my case and to argue it well. However, as we know, uh, there are plenty of people who serve out there as hired guns. Uh, Louise Andrew, who um, an MDJD who I interview in, in the podcast series a lot, she re- refers to them as testaliers, and I love that word. So there are certainly test, you know, serial testaliers out there who really do not face much um, in the way of repercussions of unfair testimony unless many, many, many years later a physician decides that they want to bring up some sort of an ethics complaint uh, with their professional board or something like that. So in a lot of ways, it's really just the Wild West. You know, experts don't receive any formal training on how to be an expert when you're in medical school or residency. Uh, Usually they're taught how to be an expert by the attorney who's asking them to help with a case. And in those cases, generally, the attorney's not teaching them how to walk the straight and narrow and how to think of the standard of care as you know, minimum competence, basically, in a in a similar setting, they are teaching that physician how to be an expert to support that side. Physicians are learning how to persuade juries more than how to be a dispassionate expert that just looks at the facts of the case and gives their opinion based on education about what standard of care actually means in a legal sense. And then, you know, it renders their opinion in that, in that light. So I think that there's a lot to talk about. I think that, you know, some professional societies have their ethics uh, or code of ethics for expert witnesses. Um, ASAP definitely has uh, a code of ethics, except that uh, the most recent poll, which granted was many years ago, but the most recent poll of members um, about it showed that more than half of the respondents had no idea that such a code actually existed. And Rick, you might remember, I have been told that once upon a time when you had to, when you were renewing your dues to ASAP, there was something that you signed that said that you were going to uphold those codes of ethics. Um, and then they disappeared. This is what I heard from Dr. Andrew. And so I don't know what prompted that disappearance, but apparently we don't have to sign about knowing about these ethics at all anymore. And uh, too bad. Uh, because there are certainly people that flout them. And I think the last time I came on, we talked about my case and we talked about the expert witness from Canada, from this tertiary care center in Canada, who came to the United States to testify. Um, I like to joke that they couldn't find a doctor in the United States who would testify against me. So they had to go to Canada, but they they bring this guy in from Canada. Um, And the very first 
um, the very first well, law, I don't know what the, what the word I'm looking for is, but the very first tenet of the code of ethics is that um, if you're going to testify against a doctor in the United States, you should be licensed to practice medicine in the United States, essentially. I'm paraphrasing. Um, and on the stand, when my attorney asked him if he was aware of this code of ethics um, and that he was violating its first tenet, the physician just said, oh, no, I, I didn't know about that. And that was it. You know, there's there's nothing to do about it after that point. You just continue on and hoping that the jury registers that. But um, there's nothing with any teeth. There is nobody. There's nobody who oversees testimony on a regular basis. There is no um, list of physicians who regularly participate in it. Um, nobody knows. There are probably people in every group who are doing expert witness work, and none of the other physicians in that group know that they do. It's like more hush hush than litigation itself. And you know, it's really, it's really painful for physicians who are stressed out by a case in the first place, and then they get this deposition to review, and it's completely outlandish, or, you know, maybe the expert's taking all sorts of liberties with their language, or, you know, all, sometimes it's not even a physician who's being, um, you know, unethical, it can just be a physician who's really overstating or doesn't understand what standard of care actually means in a legal sense. We're so used to judging each other really harshly. Um, and that's not the way that we should be looking at this, but, um, there's just, there's just so much, uh, to unpack. And I wish that we were doing a better job of educating residents in how to be an ethical expert, because I think that that would have really large ripple effects throughout all of litigation um, and the stress that it induces in, in physicians. And so I've talked a whole lot. So, <laughs> Mark, what do you think? I loved listening to what you were saying. Uh, you've hit the nail on the head, so many nails and so many heads. I really don't know where to begin. I, I've done this for over three decades. I think that you are spot on that, Doctors who are willing to testify against other doctors in a frivolous way have fueled uh, an explosion of, of lawsuits. And there has been ebb and flow, and it depends on tort reform statutes in different states. But uh, you're right, the case cannot survive without uh, having an expert witness. And so it becomes very tangled. Uh, there's a lot of forces at play here. What I see, um, doctor, the biggest mistake I think doctors make in judging other doctors is they are influenced by outcome bias. And some realize it, most of them don't. My eyes were really opened up in the early 90s, I think it was 94, Dr. Kaplan, an anesthesiologist out of Washington State, had done a study on outcome bias. And he actually testified in a case that we were involved in. And so it was something that surfaced in the deposition. And he convinced me how hard we judge others based on knowing the outcome. And when experts know the outcome, they are brutal on, on other people. And it, and it's a, it's a toxic brew of feeling superior, uh, pride kicks in, the attention that comes from thinking that you're representing the underdog. Plaintiff's attorneys are polished and slick and kind of Hollywood. 
and can make that doctor feel very, uh, you know, special that they are in the arena helping the so-called underdog. And in reality, most of the time, the underdog was the hardworking healthcare provider who missed something that had not manifested itself yet. It's easy to judge the heart attack after it's occurred. <laughs> but uh, 18 hours earlier when the EKG was not that clear and the patient was discharged home with reasonable instructions and then the hurricane hits and the patient dies and you've got an attractive widow and little kids and boy, you think you're riding in with the white horse and you're going to save the day from this guy who missed something. And boy, there but for the grace of God goes that expert. And so it's just eating our own turning on each other, ivory tower approach, and then you mix in some money and you do it against out-of-state doctors so there's no repercussions. So if you're sitting in Boston, you can testify against somebody in Corpus Christi, Texas, and not bat an eye. And that I've seen it for three decades. And uh, it, it, it bothers me and it galls me, and I'm not sure what the remedies are. You've listed several. I think there should be some classes in medical school, and then something maybe in residency that, that puts people on guard. There should be some uh, checklist standards in the uh, boards and academies that people are members of. But basically, it boils down to the honor system. And unfortunately, litigation is the wild, wild west, and people can justify anything. So um, I don't know that it's going to stop. But uh, I like you being a voice crying in the wilderness and, and uh, alerting people to the problem. Well, before, before we uh, uh, break her back by patting it, let's do a couple <laughs> of other things. <clears throat> I, I, th I think I've watched, I did 2,000 cases in my career. Um, did I see some outrageous, absolutely crazy things said? Yes. On both sides, by the way. True. Uh, and I did the vast majority of my work, 95% of my work was defense work. And I think I still hold the record for the number of cases seen. But things do change and vary place to place. And what we haven't mentioned is that this is, you, you know, law is like medicine. It's show business for ugly people. Uh, and as soon as you get into the courtroom, uh, the judge himself runs that circus and that show. You, you can't believe the decisions I've seen judges make about letting people testify, not testify on things. We've seen patients who have had Daubert challenges, all these sorts of things to try and stop them from testi testifying. And judges themselves decide in, in many cases the tenor and tone and what the jury gets to hear. So it's not simple. Remember, this is not a seeking of scientific truth. This is no matter how you put it, uh, this is, uh, uh, is resolution of conflict. And some people decide to resolve it in slightly different ways. And Mark, I'm sure you've seen judges make decisions which are absolutely crazy with regard to, to 
what's said, what their backgrounds are, what they've actually done, all these sorts of things. I've seen it uh, happen all the time. Frankly, I wish we had more than 75 minutes because if we want to jump into what's wrong with my profession, I'll start at the top with the judges. Yes, uh, exactly. You know, we, we uh, judges have a lot of power, and unfortunately, a, a decent percentage of them aren't that good. Right. And they're not that astute medically. They are influenced politically. And so they let things into evidence sometimes based on on those those factors. Um, I vacillate between an anything goes thing and and hopefully the jury can figure it out. Once the judges start meddling with what comes into evidence, um, sometimes they don't they don't make decisions any better than than the plumber, the housewife on the jury as to what should be listened to and what should be believed. I think it goes back to to what uh, Gita was saying, and that is on the front end of this, the people who are putting forth theories, particularly on causation. I mean, that's where the Daubert and the and the the gatekeeper function comes in. It's typically on causation. Uh, a lot of doctors are going to be allowed to comment on what should be done in a given situation. That's so-called standard of care. The next level is what difference would it have made, and that's where it becomes guesswork. And so uh, what Gita was saying is, is we've got to have doctors with more integrity to not guess, to not speculate, to base things on literature and proven science. That's going to be the best defense because, frankly, the lawyers don't know, the juries don't know, and the judges sure as heck don't know when there's two pretty qualified experts that collide on these things. Where, you know, yes, hospitalizing this patient would have allowed cardiac surgery, which would have allowed survival, which would have allowed them to live another 40 years. And you got somebody else saying, no, that wouldn't have happened. This guy had this. And that's earlier hospitalization wouldn't have changed anything. And the judge is just going to shrug her shoulders and say, I think we need to let the jury decide. And then it boils down to who's the strongest personality, who's on that jury, what axes are there to grind. So there's so many variables at play. It makes it very, very tricky. But if doctors could police themselves a little bit better as to what they get involved in and what they're willing to say, it would, I think, improve justice. Yep. That's music to my ears. I honestly, I really think it's within the realm of power of the professional societies uh, to develop programs by which we at least just start to keep track of who's doing it. People people do this in the shadows and absolutely just without any regard um, to to any kind of oversight whatsoever. Um, so, yeah, as long as we're, we're working on the honor system, I think we have to change two things. One, we have to change how we educate uh, residents. First of all, they don't learn anything. That's exactly why I started this podcast in the first place. They do if I come to visit well, the residency. That's one exception. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, really, we talk very, very little about – we talk a lot about risk management. We talk very little about what happens after you're served um, as, as though – once you get the envelope, well, if you get the envelope, well, you know, you shouldn't have gotten it. So you're you're just sort of lost in that case. Yep. But the other thing is really the culture of how in in medicine, when we bring people up in medicine, how we are trained to, in hindsight, as you were saying, with this outcome bias, 
how we're trained to dissect every single move that somebody made and every single decision and judge it so harshly. That's just what we do. That's what we do in M&M. Um, one of the people I interviewed, they call the ABCs of M&M, accuse, blame, criticize. That's how we were sort of raised in medicine. I mean, on, yeah. even yesterday, yesterday, I did a Zoom Grand Rounds for a program somewhere far away. And of course, I don't know anyone who's listening to me. And the the hour that I talked was not about my case. I talk about more of this journey through um, through litigation and two jury trials. And I say very briefly in the beginning that the case was about a young woman who had a cerebellar stroke. And that is all I talk about. Inevitably, there is somebody at the end who wants to say, wants to ask, well, what, what was the case? What did you do? Like, what they want to find the thing that you did wrong. And yesterday, mm-hmm. This physician was just like, well, did you do this? Did you do that? I, I wanted to say that I, I litigated this case twice over 12 years. I don't really feel like doing it again now, but I'm sure <laughs> like he's quite sure that he could have yeah. found something that I could have done better. Um, it's just the way we are. Gita, yeah. be honest. You've considered going to law school, haven't you? Oh, I'm just, I'm too old. I'm too yeah, old. Yeah, but believe me, <laughs> it, you can take the case of Louise. We've spoken of her. Uh, a lot of the people I see go to law school is because they have been scorned. Yes. They've gotten into the uh, system. They've been burned. You know, uh, these are the same people uh, who uh, become um, uh, attorneys that deal with with divorces once they've been through a bad <laughs> divorce themselves. I think I'm just going to, I'm going to be an, an evangelist. That's what I've become. <laughs> a believer. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the problems with this, and nobody ever talks about it, is that the money that is to be made is so good and so easy that it's just very, very d- difficult to turn your back on it um, when you see some of the, hourlies that are being charged and the minimums that are being charged by uh, our friends, frankly, Mm -hmm. who uh, have decent credentials and um, they're they're making serious money on the couch at home in front of uh, uh, Jeopardy or maybe. You know, yeah, (laughs) there was I mean, Greg, you tell the story uh, in one of the podcasts about um, an attorney who you've come up against regularly who will at times have 50 cases going on at once. Like, how can you possibly be, how can you possibly be doing that um, with the depth and attention that you're supposed to be giving each and every one of these opinions? The, yes. you know, they're raking in millions and millions of dollars. It's, it's really um, galling, I right. think. Although but what we can't, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, though. When we look back at what's happened, let's take Texas, for example, with their uh, change in the tort system. Uh, your docs have done pretty damn well. Isn't that isn't that right, Mark? Yeah, since 2003, doctors have been you know better protected than before. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful to the legislature. Yeah. Uh, but there's still in the crosshairs many times. And as we've talked about on other, on other, uh, podcasts and, and situations where we've talked, uh, it's not just lawsuits. Uh, you know, you have the licensing boards, you have peer reviews. These are other arenas that are similar 
but yet different enough. So you may have tort reform that helps you with the lawsuits, but the peer review front and the licensing board, that can cause a lot of agony to, uh, to the doctors. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, and it's it the same thing with the medical board. You've got the you've got, uh, you know, anonymous experts that are willing to be critical. I And that's the thing that's a little bit discouraging it, it, to what Gita was saying earlier. Just the, the you know, what is the you know, what, what is the thread of, of and the temperature of of why doctors do what they do? This isn't just earning big money and big money is a huge, huge problem. As, as Rick pointed out and rightfully pointed out, plaintiff's attorneys are paying much more than than the defense can pay, and that attracts them. But even with a board situation where they're not making very much money, it's an ego pride thing, and they become hypercritical and willing to really cause that doctor some problems. I had a case where we went before the board for a neurologist on a, on a, a brain tumor of a 22-year-old. It was a very hard fought, uh, matter, we didn't get a, the opportunity to cross examine these two neurologists that the Texas medical board had retained within Texas to be critical of my client. We had to beat them by getting better experts, getting literature, but I still hearken back to that, even though it happened two or three years ago. And I say, what were they thinking about? What was their motivation when they saw our presentation of literature? They still did not withdraw their concerns. We had to go up to Austin and fight that hearing and convince the panel to go with us. And they said, we reject what our experts have said. And I was like, my gosh, why did we have to come to this? Why didn't they recognize it? And I'll tell you why. They were very vested. They had already, they had, the die was cast and they were wanting to engage and they'd had too much pride to pull back. Yep. That's bad. And that wasn't money. But it's not uncommon, Mark. If you see the the people who really know how to run mediation, they know how to keep the sides from getting into hard and fast positions that they can't back away from right away. And and, uh, there are, I've seen brilliant uh, attorneys running mediations that are able to bring people to, to give and to talk about the honesty of opinions. And then I've seen those who day moment one start a fight and they don't know how to back away from it uh, without, uh, you, well, you know, Texas, no, you're right. Texas, you don't have to back away from it. You just shoot the <laughs> son of a bitch, you know, it's real simple. Right. But, over but the, over right. the years, uh, we've uh, learned that if you have a, any kind of medical board dealing, that they tend to be biased against the doctors, and yep. they don't have to follow any of the rules of evidence that are applicable in a mm-hmm. supposedly fair jury process. And so uh, if you're contacted by the medical board, that you need to lawyer up real quickly because the stakes are very high and the rules are not particularly uh, balanced. They may be, but they don't have to be. It yeah, is one of the biggest of surprises um, to, to to students and residents when I tell them that, you know, under most circumstances, the Department of Health is not your friend. No. And, um, you know, we in, in Rhode Island had a situation last year where, which I was heavily involved in, um, and I, we don't need to get into the whole thing, but essentially there were a, a number of 
physicians and physician assistants who were targeted by the Department of Health after they had self-reported um, electronic medical record order entry errors. Um, and they they self-reported these into a hospital safety net kind of situation. And then that information was turned over to the Department of Health. And they reported those in this effort to try, you know, in a, in a culture of safety, trying to get to root causes and make things better. And then the Department of Health turned around and was like, okay, we're just going to, you know, we're going to punish all of you, basically. And they had these very, you know, it was all very hush-hush and behind closed doors. And a, a bunch of them sort of just got whisked through. And they are, they were basically treating these physicians as though, you know, they're in the same rogues gallery when you go on um, their website as the drug peddlers and the sexual offenders. And, you know, it it was someone who ordered an ultrasound on the wrong person because the charts were lined up the certain way in Epic and they were trying to make the computer program better. Um, and yet this is what happened. So we, you know, we were really up in arms, but it was, it was quite a battle. Um, yeah. in getting the Department of Health to back down and those cases that they actually already adjudicated, they would not they would not hear about um, rescinding what they'd said or, or anything like that. So they're, it's it's you know, it's it's a rough place to be. Well, you've got to remember in their business, they only get credit for finding fault with somebody. Right. If they said, here's 95 cases, uh, how they do pretty well. Nobody wants to hear that. I think they of them only, like Jayco. Yeah, yeah, no, they <laughs> yeah. don't want to hear that. And and I've been to many. I've had to go to many uh, state medical boards, and uh, some states are better than others. I mean, pretty much in Montana, you have to leave the body in a hallway with a knife in the back and your fingerprints <laughs> on that knife. If it's in New York State. God help you, because that's a political state where, where part of the power in New York is having gotten doctors. We found criminals. We did this and that. In Montana, they kind of like to have doctors. They don't have very many of them, so they like to keep them around. State of New York, they couldn't give a damn. Even if they are uh, murderers. Mark, you know, uh, we've talked about this in the past about American College of Emergency Physicians is our trade organization of which 40,000 of us belong. And uh, they have a, they have this um, statement of what they think experts ought to be and do. And I'm very sorry to hear that. In fact, that's not something that is acknowledged on some periodic basis as a, as a part of your membership. Um, I don't, I didn't know that it was in something that we signed, no, no less taken away. But, um, but when you look at the number of years and the number of doctors involved, um, ASEP is very, very, very um, careful. Uh, maybe that maybe that's a, a generous word about going after and censuring doctors who are members. Uh, uh, We're cautious. Um, even though that you know, and the idea is you bring members bring cases to them, and there's a board set up, and ASAP doctors review it, and they, you know, there's probably been a handful, five or six. Am I am I in the ballpark of censures by the American College of Emergency Physicians? Now over, about twelve, yeah, over all eternity. 
And in fact, the most famous one was a physician who, um, whose name was on the most famous textbooks in, textbook in emergency medicine, um, who, was, who was named in this several years ago because he had a reputation as being, you know, uh, working for plaintiffs consistently and um, not, not being very um, uh, co- uh, um, competent in terms of his testimony. And, and the other thing that we also saw is that physicians who were officers in ASEP would use their position to help them get to be experts on trials that had nothing to do with... There was a fellow who was the president of ASEP, and uh, he would use that credential uh, when he was giving testimony that was medical testimony. And the, and the president of ASEP could be a total dunce uh, medically, but he is elected pol- politically. Now, I resemble that remark, damn it. I mean, let's be very careful here. Well, you know who I'm talking about. Yes, I do. (laughs) Well, I think you're hitting on a common human theme that goes back to the core of a lot of these problems. Power corrupts. And whether it's in ASAP or whether it's the judge or, or whatever position it may be, it influences people. And, you know, when I sit down... I, I can cross-examine an emergency medicine doctor on something that I, I feel that they are compromising their integrity, and they have a look in their eye like I'm the crazy one, and that they believe this with everything they've got. And so when there's questions of fact, when there's gray areas, it's very hard to to come to a consensus, hey, this guy's wrong, he's out of line. Um, again, I go back to doctors just need to self-check a little bit better, but I do want to, I don't want to give the impression that the licensing boards aren't doing a good job. Um, they have, they have a lot to do and there's a lot of wrongdoing out there. Let's, we all know that, uh, you guys see it. I see it. There's a lot of things for them to catch. I know the Texas Medical Board, I think they're doing a good job. I would talk to the immediate past president yesterday. He's helping me on another matter. And I just praised him because he did a great job during his tenure. The current guy is doing a great job. But uh, there are mistakes that are made. And um, it, these are usually big bureaucracies. And they tend to grind up the uh, the, the the solo health care provider and it can be very, very difficult. So I just think we have to have a little more mercy on each other. And when doctors judge other doctors, they need to be reasonable. And they need to pause and say, is this going to have ripple effect that I'm not going to be able to control? And I think that that is something that should govern them getting involved. Gita, give us your next point. Oh, uh, I don't know. I made so many of them at once. Um, oh, so here's something that I don't think we talk about enough, uh, which is the that we don't have to disclose expert witness testimony as a conflict of interest. So what I have seen um, are physicians who I know testify regularly on certain topics. So let's say stroke, for instance. Um they have, um, you know, a, a lecture circuit that they go on. They are involved in studies. They are involved in writing guidelines. And then they also, then they go back and then they testify using those things that they put out there as, you know, which are, of course, serving as advertisements for plaintiff's attorneys who are looking for physicians to testify in stroke. Um, and 
they just sort of feed off each other. When they go into court, then they can point to those studies or those guidelines that they helped write or um, those lectures that they gave or those tweets that they put out there and say like, oh, see, this is my unbiased opinion. When in fact, it's this whole circle that fuels itself uh, that really just gets them more and more and more lucrative business. Um, we have to disclose so many other things. I don't understand why we should not also have to disclose that we testify as experts on certain topics um, because it's certainly, um, I really think it actually slants opinions and taints everything. Well, if, if the attorneys are good, though, they bring that stuff out. I mean, uh, having having had my uh, deposition taken some tw- 12 or 1300 times, I promise you, they've had somebody they should have, if they're competent, who reads your, looks at your CV and has read your previous depositions. Mm -hmm. So they know what you lecture on, what you do. And believe me, there are genuine differences of opinion. I'm glad you mentioned stroke. Because this college was split right down the middle on the giving of TPA. Mm-hmm. Now, now that we've gone to, to doing more advanced things, you know, uh, direct sucking out of clots and that kind of stuff, it is a little different. But, but the entire TPA question was going to divide the college. And this was absolutely the ego of those people involved who were invested Mm-hmm. in TPA as a, as a therapy. Right. But I think, I think that's absolutely true, but I think that we should go one step further. You know, when I do a presentation for anyone on my second slide, I have to list my disclosures, right? I have to say all the things that I'm getting paid for that is relevant to this topic. Anytime someone makes a presentation in academic medicine, they should also be disclosing that I testify about this or, you know, that I, I earn money based, you know, about uh, when testifying about this particular topic. Yeah. I just, I, I think it's the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, think, I mean, even when I give speeches, I've got to, to put in disclaimers and, and be upfront about it. And, uh, I think you're right. I, I, I think you're spot on again. Well, did we solve something here? Did we write down the answer? Don't let that escape us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well it's you clearly- know, there, there have been some great, um, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I think there have been some great ideas that I've heard about how we can start to at least make some small impact on this. And um, Greg, when you were on my podcast, you mentioned something just as simple as having a directory. Just in our profession, having a directory of expert witnesses, having everyone just have to have some sort of registration or licensure or some some small little thing that they would have to do to acknowledge that they are, um, you know, that they are offering their opinion for money. And in some states, I think, you know, Mark can comment as to whether or not that's actually considered part of the practice of medicine or not. But it's something that I feel like our professional society should should do something about. So even just having a directory and knowing who is participating, I think would be a start. Um, somebody else on the podcast suggested, well, hey, what if we had a system where it was sort of like jury duty? You know, you may get paid an average physician's 
hourly rate um, to and every year, maybe you would have to just be the expert for X number of cases. And would there be a way for it to and mark? I'm sure that you could think of all the ways in which this could never happen, but um, could there be a way in which it wasn't like plaintiffs paying for experts and defendants paying for experts, but that there were just experts? There's a pool of experts and it's their duty to testify at a trial. Well, you're um, starting to talk now like uh, New Zealand and places where right? it, other places do this. Yes. England, England does this. It, they, it will never are, happen in this country because it. This is about the the legal system as it exists, and you're asking for a huge change in the the way malpractice is uh, is addressed. But yes, I, I think I, that based on what we know about New Zealand, it sounds like a pretty awesome way to go. If yeah. a person is harmed. They get compensated for their injuries, and the issue of whether that the the person, the doctor, was culpable or not is a totally different matter. Relates to peer review of his actions, but the compensation mm -hmm. of the patient is not related to uh, whether, in fact, um, the physician uh, harmed the patient. Exactly. Uh, listen. Well, and we may be heading there. We may get there. Oh, you think so? Types of positive changes. I think it's possible. I mean, you look at all the changes that have happened in the last 10 years. Right. I think we could be heading that direction. What I would like at the beginning of a case is to have a mediation then and have this panel that you're t talking about where we provide an hour summary to Dr. Bucata and Dr. Henry and maybe a th and, and, and Gita. And we say, Here's the hour summary that's agreed on. That the, here are the facts. Here are the medical issues. Tell us what you think. Mm -hmm. And maybe we make some decisions based on that. And two out of the three say, you know what? This was handled reasonably. I'm sorry there was a bad outcome. And two out of three may say, you know, this wasn't handled uh, right. This 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 could have been handled better. And and then you just make a decision if you want to resolve it at the beginning rather than a three year war. Uh, and and have uh, experts colliding at the end. So, by the way, I've I've uh, basically retired from practice. I haven't actually had to testify, and it's probably been now four or five years. But uh, I've just got to notice that a case that I gave testimony on thirteen years ago <laughs> has had four trips. To the appellate court. Oh, God. <laughs> and they asked, would, you know, would I come back? And I said, well, you know, I'm competent as to what happened in those days. But I said that most of these people got to be dead now, right? I mean, are you really going on? Yes. This is a case where <laughs> the actual harm took place 13 years ago. Well, and let's, thought, let, oh, God help me. Let's bring it full circle, Greg. You also said, I will come back, but how much can you pay me? <laughs> <laughs> it depends. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. In, in My today, hourly rate has gone up. Yeah, mm -hmm. In today's dollars. Yes, that's right. 13 I, years of inflation. Yeah, I look back on some of those early cases that I did where I was, uh, you know, charging, I was getting paid in the emergency department in those days, 60 or $70 an hour. And I got a hundred dollars an hour and thought that was outrageous at that point in time. Oh my God, what would they be charging today for that stuff? 
unbelievable. Mark, um, we uh, last time we talked, uh, we uh, suggested that maybe you kind of come up, if you could, with a list of the things that that if you had your druthers, doctors doc would pay attention to before they saw you. Yeah, um, I think preventative medicine is the best goal here because, as as Gita, I think can confirm. You know, once you are in the battle of a lawsuit, it is it is tough, even if you prevail. So the best lawsuit is no lawsuit and taking steps to avoid that to the extent you can. And sometimes you can't uh, is the best thing. I've got 10, a list of 10. That's just easy. I could list 100. This is in no particular order of importance. I'll go ahead and read it so that people listening can at least hear the categories and then maybe we can work through them. Uh, and get through what we can. Um, in no particular order of importance, but here's my top 10 list of mistakes or failures. Number one, bedside manner. Number two, a failure to appreciate the time factor. Uh, number three, a failure to be aware of technology. Number four, failures in the records. Number five, failures with the treatment team. I'm talking about nurses, mid-levels, consultants. Number six, failures in not admitting the serious patient. Number seven, failures in promptly seeking help. Number eight, failures in transferring to a higher level of care. Number nine, failures in using literature resources. And my last one relates to once you are in the arena, and that is the failure on the part of the doctor to prepare whether that is preparing for deposition, preparing for trial, knowing the records, knowing the pertinent literature, knowing the allegations, making the commitment to be a good witness. Um, those things can be um, very destructive, even when you have a good case. If you don't come across well and you're not prepared, you're torpedoing your uh, your situation. So those are the 10. On bedside manner, um, one of my favorite quotes is from Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, Rick, you and I kind of talked about this off the record, just this idea of how you treat other people. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt said the most important single ingredient in the formula of success is knowing how to get along with people. And that's the biggest failure I see with doctors. They nailed the SAT they nailed the MCAT. They they could launch the space shuttle from their laptop, but they cannot interact with people well, and therefore they are going to constantly have have hiccups and problems in this arena. And we've entered a world now where the patients are sophisticated. They're aware based on TV, internet, et cetera. So they can file a complaint in a second. They can reach a lawyer in two seconds. They know the game. And so if we don't interact well with them, it's not 25 years ago. It's a different world now. And I think young doctors need to be um, particularly astute to, uh, to that. Um, so a couple of examples that I've, uh, I wanted to cite, and then we can roundtable it if you'd like. You know, some of this is just my family uh, and I have, uh, you know, we're recipients of, of health care. And so I've had um, uh, parents in, in dire straits, both, lost both of them in the last five years. 
Um, my sister had a had a uh, elevated calcium about a year ago. Had to go to the emergency room. I got there, and uh, you know I was worried sick. And uh, the doctor walked in. I could immediately tell. And I'm a I'm an advocate for doctors. <laughs> I'm on y'all side. I've defended you for 33 years. <laughs> and I could immediately tell when he walked in that he viewed us adversarially. We were not on the same team. And I could tell that. And he was irritated by my questions. And and I'm somewhat informed of this. So I'm just trying to find out information because my sister is in a rigid position with her jaw locked because she has too high a calcium, which we didn't know at the time. And I'm just trying to find out information. And I could tell already it was becoming adversarial. And I just thought, this is unnecessary. We just want to try to figure out what's going on. Is she having a stroke? Is she having some kind of neurologic collapse? Are you going to do blood work? What can we do? And I wasn't, it wasn't a, hey, when he walked in, I hit him with a hundred questions. It was, he did his thing and then was about to walk out. And I kind of did a, hey, you know, um, could you give us a little bit of guidance here? And just the look was, I'm identifying you as not on my team. You are kind of an opponent. And that creates some friction. Now, I, I, I let it go, but I think, I think most low people aren't going to let it go. And so when that turns into something that's terrible, they're going to remember that look and that feeling. Another one that I'll throw out there real quickly, young emergency medicine doctor that we were defending, older guy, he had fallen and he had hurt himself. He went to a, a rural emergency room and um, there was family in the room. And the guy was, uh, he and his wife were living on their own and they were in their mid nineties and the doctor, the doctor made a comment and he said something like, isn't it about time that you got him into a nursing home? Well, I, we didn't know he had made the comment. He didn't remember it. It wasn't in the records of course, but about a year later after there was a lawsuit, one of the daughters was being deposed and she was a lawyer. And she recited that the, that the doctor had said this to her. And she felt very condescended and offended. And I know that's one of the reasons they included that guy in the lawsuit. Now, we ultimately wiggled him out. It took two or three years. But the lack of nuance and touch with the family led to that uh, lawsuit, uh, him being included in the lawsuit. So failures in bedside manner, I think, is probably the biggest reason why emergency medicine doctors are included in lawsuits and board complaints. Yeah. There's no question the, the best clinical doctor who ever trained me told me something I, I will never forget. He said, uh, they'll never remember what you said they'll never forget how you made them feel. And I love that phrase. And you can see it in your colleagues and you can see it in the young ones very quickly. There are people who've got human nature figured out. They can, have, they can take your wallet and your watch and you'd thank them for it. And then you've got those who've got good news to give you and still piss you off. I'm, I'm, you don't know how they can be so bad at just carrying on normal conversation. And when you actually 
as I've taught this stuff for 40 years and you watch it, you realize you can see uh, uh, train wrecks coming down the road with certain personalities oh, and yeah. you know they're going to be a problem. Oh, yeah. uh, the doc who's being deposed and becomes insulting or dismissive of, of the process is is picking a fight that they do not need at that moment in time. Well, you know, right now in the COVID uh, process, uh, emergency physicians and nurses and PAs and MPs and all the people who are on the front line are getting such good press um, that it, it's really gratifying to see that we that finally they're getting some of the recognition because they often get kicked in the shins by people. Although there is a kind of a dark side to this because there is this undercurrent of the gunslinger emergency physician, the badass emergency physician who is very cocky in terms of their medical knowledge, but are kind of devoid of uh, any kind of appreciation of human feelings, suffering, those kinds of things. And um, somehow we're kind of like uh, glorifying this kind of badass um, reputation for um, emergency physicians. And, and I've seen, you know, there's some terminology that's th thrown around that's a little bit more, uh, more graphical than badass. And mm -hmm. that uh, physicians <laughs> that are kind of wrapping their coat in them. This, uh, this, and um, I think it's dangerous. Uh, I think it's dangerous. Um, yes, I appreciate all that they're doing. I think it, what they're doing has been extraordinary. Um, and in that regard, you know, there is all of this movement to during this period, uh, basically, uh, to say that you have to be a, an active felon to commit um, malpractice, <clears throat> whereby states are are basically um, granting you pretty much immunity against malpractice uh, as you get into being on the front lines and trying to help, you know, all of these people who are coming down with these nasty illnesses. Well, uh, the governor, the governor of New York, basically said, if you come here to help out in the city of New York, we'll take care of the malpractice problem. You don't well, <laughs> I, uh, you know, maybe Mark can speak to this. I actually, so I, I think that there's a very big, um, chasm and understanding about what that protection actually means because, you know, people who are volunteering to go there and people who are, um, coming from out of state, or coming out of retirement, I think they're under this impression that they don't need to have adequate coverage because they have immunity from being sued. But it's not my understanding. Mark can Mark can really speak to this more. But it's not immunity from being sued. I mean, anyone can file a lawsuit against you. the The bar now is gross negligence or willful misconduct. So someone's going to have to defend that case until a jury decides whether there was gross negligence or not. I mean, we saw in in Louisiana, Louisiana in a public health emergency has very strong protections. Um, and uh, in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, there were still uh, criminal too, but criminal and civil cases lodged against physicians that had to be defended um, with this, the outcome being, you know, was, was the physician um, liable, 
using gross negligence as um, as the standard. So, yeah, but don't worry, Gina. We're, we we'll do the best to defend you. Don't. You? <laughs> I mean, Mark Mark and I. I'll testify. Mark will ask. I'll take Mark any day. Uh, yeah. No, the I, funky things you were doing with those bodies. Nah, I, <laughs> we'll get it dropped. People think that it they can you know. As as you said, you, they could find the body in the hallway with a knife in their back and the prints on them, and no one's going to call them to the carpet. That's not true. Um, you know, the jury may find them not liable in the end, but um, but someone has to defend that case. So I just keep making the point: like you have to make sure that you're insured properly. You have to make sure that you're insured that your insurance is going to cover you when you're in emergency physician working in the ICU. You have to make sure you have coverage when you're coming from you know Rhode Island going to New York. Uh, or you're coming out of retirement, you better make sure your license is in order. Like all of those I's have to be dotted. All of those T's have to be crossed. It's not just like, oh, you can come volunteer here and like no one's going to sue you. Um, that's not true. By I the way, I, I am looking for the first case uh, from COVID-19 to be filed against an emergency physician. You know, I collect things. Weird well, you things. Saw ads, right? What, what? The ads circulating, the plaintiff's attorney ads, that they're soliciting COVID-19 cases. It's yes, and what I, what I want to see the first one that is actually filed. Because what, what you have to realize is uh, once a case is filed, there's going to be a lot of anger in mm -hmm. the medical community. And you know what? Most people in in and around the city of New York, if you came in from someplace, donated your time, um, even in New York, they're, they're not going to go after you for that. I mean, you got to be uh, a kind of a strange person to think you're going to win that case. But who's going to know about it? No one's going to know about it until after the fact. Well, <laughs> they will eventually. I would just say, let the buyer beware. If the doctor is going to proceed into a place like New York, I wouldn't bank on a representation that there won't be a lawsuit. I think Gita's right. I think there will be lawsuits, but I also think you're right, Greg, that I think that there will be probably some judicial flexibility that will maybe scrutinize those cases a little bit more. Um, but it'll be interesting to see. It'll be quite a dilemma. Yeah. Um, okay. Number two, is the failure to appreciate the time factor. And this just popped into my mind because, again, we're talking about lay people being dissatisfied. Uh, what I hear in emergency medicine cases, there's almost always a time complaint. I waited too long. I was in the waiting room for five and a half hours. I was in the room for three hours. I saw the doctor for six and a half minutes. Uh, so the idea of things taking too long, and the doctor not spending enough time with them. To lay people, time equals caring. And so if there's not enough time spent in their mind, the doctor didn't care. So what is some remedy to that? I would say bond early. When you go into the room, when you see that patient, find reasons to kind of uh, join with them. I'm here to help you. We're going to get you out of pain. Uh, give them a heads up early on that uh, things are going to take time. You know, we've got some lab work we need to run. We're going to send you to x-ray. Uh, it's going to take a while to get some feedback on these things. You're going to rest quietly in here. We'll check on you periodically. You've kind of mapped out the day for them. And uh, let them know that uh, it's going to take a while, that you're available, 
and peek in periodically. Hey, how are you doing, partner? Oh, you need some more help? Okay, I'm going to get nurse so-and-so to come in here and, and see you. I think all of those things help soften it. Um, I will let you know, I went in for a physical probably seven years ago, very noted. Now, this is an emergency medicine situation, but the principle applies. Uh, really good primary care doctor, primary care doctor for some of the sports teams. I went in. I needed to have a little bit of a, you know, an overhaul. I need some time. And I'll never forget, he spent five minutes. And it was broken up on a minute and a half here, uh, a minute and a half there, two minutes, and he was done. Then it was the nurse practitioner. They gave me a bunch of a bunch of handouts, and I walked out of there and said, he doesn't care. And, and that's okay, but I never went back. Now, if something happens the next day, <laughs> I'm not happy with him because he didn't spend any time. So that translates into the emergency medicine situation. Uh, it triggers dissatisfaction when things take too long and when the, when the doctor doesn't spend enough time. You can't control that. I get that. People are listening and say, what do you want us to do? I understand that's the system. You need to educate that patient that that's the way it is and try to soften it and try to expand your minutes, peeking in occasionally. It can be for 10 seconds, but if yep. you have a smile and we're making progress and I've, I've called your family <clears throat> doctor or I've called the neurologist, he should be here within the next 30 minutes, that took seven seconds to say. And that can buy you a lot of goodwill. Well, the, the real thing is that time is variable. You can create a sense that you were there longer. There's no question totally. that if you sit down, uh, people believe if you're off your feet, you're on their case. And yes. sometimes just sitting down for a few seconds to talk with them works. And I, I there, when I, and working with young docs on this question, that's the first thing I want to see is, did you shake hands? And I know now with COVID, you're not supposed to. At least do the chicken wing. At least <laughs> do the do something. Uh, and if you can sit down. Yeah, pull up And a chair. Uh, there, there was a study done on that as to how long they thought you were in the room. Those people, when they sat down, it was twice as much time. Uh, as was actually spent. That's a great and, idea. And I, I think it's so simple. Why not do it? That's why I like to have an extra chair in the examining room for me to sit down. The other thing is I'm old now. I need to be <laughs> off my feet. <laughs> and sometimes two minutes sitting down and talking with a patient is a good thing. I love yeah, it. We've been taught um, about this idea of anticipatory guidance. Right. The idea of kind of outlining what's going to happen uh, and reasonable estimates of the time frame for those things to happen so that you uh, set up and you always exaggerate how much time it's going to take so Over. that when the x-ray doesn't take an hour and it only takes a half hour, they're pleased because they were expecting yeah. yes. it's going to be an hour. You know, this is terrific. The, what the a, what a great hospital. <laughs> it only took yeah. a half hour for an x-ray. It's the Disney... Uh, uh, or the airline principle. I always love it when uh, Delta says, uh, be prepared, staff, for another on-time arrival. Or uh, 
I'm sorry. We're here seven minutes early. Uh, I've yes. called, I've called the, uh, you know, they're, they're coming to bring the uh, ramp and that sort of thing. How can you be mad that you're there early? <laughs> the psychology works. The, the psychology works. The psychology works. You know, we, uh, uh, my partner, Neil Little and I used to go through and look at all the ways Disney had played those games, uh, to trick you into believing that things were happening on time. And uh, Disney, that's all they do is deal with people all day long uh, who want to be made happy. And they, they don't care whether you know anything about science. They just want to be happy. And you know what? They're good at it. They're very good at it. Well, well uh, I'll go back to what Teddy said, Teddy Roosevelt, knowing how to get along with people is the secret to success. Right, exactly. Neil Little, who was Greg's partner for many, many years, uh, I think is credited with this, but you might get partial credit, Greg, that the answer to all questions in the emergency department by the clinicians is yes. Yes. Whatever the question is, the answer is yes. Doctor, can I have a cigarette? Yes. As soon as we <laughs> take out the endotracheal tube, you know, it was always, always yes. No, it's called, no, there was it's a few just caveats quality. in there, but ultimately the answer was yes. It's yeah. the caveat that qualifies the answer, you know, that, you know, can I have a pizza? Yes. Once we take the IV out. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Okay, number three is the failure to be aware of technology. There's a couple of areas here, and I really I, I want to hit this one and then the next one on records. Um, I think that in this day and age, the practitioner has to assume that they are being recorded. Um, certainly audio, but probably video too. And it may be um, obvious and you can invite them not to per HIPAA or something else that you want to say, but it's probably going to be less obvious. Now, sometimes it's because maybe English is not their first language. They want to be able to Google terms. They don't understand what's being said. It may be innocent. Sometimes it's not innocent, just like they record a police officer. And it'll be in a backpack or it'll be in their, in their uh, pocket. You won't really be able to tell. But you are being recorded. Um, one example, we had an emergency medicine case. Uh, the patient was handled in the emergency room by the emergency medicine doctor. It was a sickle cell uh, crisis uh, case. And then the guy went up to the floor with a resident. He was unhappy with how the emergency medicine doctor had allegedly treated him. And the resident was talking to the patient about it. And the patient recorded the resident. And the resident expressed some displeasure with how the doctor had, had acted in the emergency room. Well, that came out in a lawsuit. So practitioners have to assume that they're being recorded. Mm -hmm. um, I would encourage you to go to listeners, just, just go to YouTube and Google Virginia anesthesiologist recorded or California emergency room doctor recorded. Just Google those. I mean, just put those in the search of YouTube and you will find some videos <laughs> where those things happen and audio. And it will kind of uh, make, your, uh, make your jaw drop and realize that that's happening to you. So be aware of that technology and the other aspect of technology that I think doctors need to be more aware of is the electronic health record and the audit trail. I've had several cases 
where doctors have added to the record and they didn't note it. It was captured because of the, the, the footprint that is left when they go back in to the electronic record. You yep. need to understand that. And when you've received some type of letter of complaint or even the lawsuit and you go back in and add a couple of sentences or a couple of paragraphs or a couple of pages, that is going to come out. Plaintiff's attorneys are taught to ask for the audit trail. The judges always allow them to have it. The medical board will seek it too, and um, it can haunt you. So if you're going to do an addendum, and we are doing an addendum today for a guy on a medical board case, uh, make sure it's clear. That's okay. You can complete the record if you need to. But otherwise, just live with it. You Let just got to date it. With it. Just got to date it and time it. I yeah. mean, it, it, what you don't want is any appearance that you did it contemporaneous with the visit that you, you, you can't, you can't stand that kind of complaint because it looks like you're guilty right off the top. Yeah. You really shoot yourself in the foot. If you uh, don't uh, respect that, they're going to be able to show when that happened. Right. Um, so those are, those are a couple of technology areas. Um, another failure. Number four is, is a big one. And that is failure with respect to the records, particularly as I get older, I have great sympathy for just having to write things down and do all these things, touch all the bases. But you doctors, you guys are, are your snipers. And you ever seen the sniper movies, how they clean their guns? You know, it's, it, you know, they, they, it's, it's like they're caring for a newborn. They're cleaning that gun for you as a doctor, your gun is the records. You have got to clean the gun. In other words, your records need to be good. They don't necessarily have to be outstandingly long, but the important things have to be in there. Why is this not a dissecting aortic aneurysm? List those points. And if you don't know the five points, go to up to date and then list in there why this is not a dissecting aneurysm or a PE or some other significant event. Note it in the record. Plaintiff's attorneys will tattoo you if you don't have things in the record showing that you didn't rule out that this was some kind of significant problem. Um, another you know, example, I mean, so we're talking about incomplete records, inadequate records, wrong records, altered records. Another one is to not really capture the the situation in your writing and they're they're relying on things that the nurse has put down. So I'm thinking of a, a particular case where I defended an ER doctor and it was um it was a cardiac case. Um the EKG on the top of it said STEMI. The nurse wrote in her area of the record STEMI. But we didn't write STEMI. We didn't think it was a STEMI. And this is how I met Dr. Matu. He didn't think it was a STEMI either. The problem for the doctor and how he could have made it easier on himself was to recognize that the EKG said STEMI, the nurse wrote STEMI. He needs to write in the record why it's not a STEMI. Right. I mean, write the particulars yeah. of it. Uh, yeah. Dr. Matu came in and saved the day. But it was somewhat avoidable. They just beat the crud out of him that the EKG and the nurse diagnosed STEMI, and he didn't. And the guy later had a STEMI, okay, yeah. five hours later. Another area of records is when you have the midnight visit and you're 
going to be consulting with, uh, you know, the general surgeon on a, on a, some type of potential, you know, abdominal issue that needs surgical attention. Um, a case in particular, Ira actually represented the general surgeon in that case, but the emergency medicine doctor contacted my client. It was, you know, 12 or one in the morning and, uh, told him he needed to come see the patient, but told him he didn't need to come right then. Of course, the guy was dead by eight in the morning and there was a lawsuit and they were both included. Well, guess what? There was a real discrepancy over what had been said. I mean, the general surgeon was like, he didn't tell me he had, had an elevated white blood cell count. And the emergency medicine doctor is, yes, I did. I did tell you that. And that's what they said in their respective depositions. Well, from the emergency medicine doctor's standpoint, guess what would have helped? Noting in the record that he told the general surgeon what the white blood cell count was. I mean, he has a 21,000 white blood cell count. You know, if you don't want to come in right now, I, you know, I think you should, <laughs> but, I, <laughs> I, but I told you that he had a white blood cell count of 21,000 leaving that out of the record makes it a jump ball when there's a lawsuit and then it's going to boil down to personality and, and, and the jury basically kind of flipping a coin as to who they believe. So inadequacies in the records, and we've talked before about discharge summaries, better discharge summaries. There's no downside to having them follow up next business day with someone. This idea of, you know what, they're not feeling that great. They need to follow up with their, with their neurologist or their orthopedic surgeon or with their family care doctor. I'm going to say four days. I'm going to say five days. I just say follow up next business day. Make contact with your PCP next business day and, and, and follow up ASAP. Um, wording that basically says don't sit on this. Come back if there's any change in anything. If you're not going to hospitalize them, then just make that bridge, uh, you know, reasonable that gives you protection. And I don't think it gives you protection to have a, a lengthy follow-up time period. What's the difference between following up in five days and following up in one day? Well, the plaintiff's attorneys will, will make hay over the five-day follow-up because the I'm guy's not going to follow Not to interrupt. I'm glad that you no, said no. – um, about making contact and calling because what has been fed back to me from consultants or from the people to whom I'm referring this person is if you think that I'm going to be able to see that person the next day, you're wrong. And then it sets them up for when they're sued for their bad outcome. The chart says, Hey, you were supposed to, the, the, even the emergency physician said you were supposed to see them the next day. You didn't see the next day. You took three days to see them. And so, um, so my practice now, you can tell me what you think is, is really just to say, call, like call their office tomorrow, let them know what's happening and then let them determine when they're going to see you. Um, cause I don't want to shoot anybody else either. Um, but I do want to make sure that these people know the importance of getting timely follow-up. And I usually say, no, call tomorrow, talk to the provider, talk to the office and see when you can get in. Yeah. I, I like that wording, uh, make arrangements for, you know, prompt follow-up, things like that. Um, I, I think that uh, what 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 comes into my mind is most of the patients aren't going to follow through uh, with this. Um, so you want it on the patient. I've handed the baton off to you. Mm -hmm. uh, you're you know today's Sunday. I want you to call your doctor tomorrow and be seen as soon as you reasonably can. Um, if they do 
reach out to the PCP and the PCP says, I can't work you in today unless it is an urgency. Well, by gosh, work them in then if they're saying it's an urgency. That is then their analysis. And they can always coach them to go back to the emergency room. You know, you really are having chest pain. I would send you to the emergency room anyway. So go there now. I'll see you, you know, at the end of the day uh, there. I'll meet you there. I mean, uh, so this is kind of a, a continuum. And I'm just saying for you to successfully handle your part, I wouldn't worry too much about, well, this kind of puts the subsequent guy in an awkward position. <laughs> You're, it's going to end up, you know, kind of backfiring on you, right? Because yeah. in the deposition, you're saying, well, I didn't want them to feel pressured to see him, you know, and it's like, no, you need to be seen relatively soon. It's not an emergency for what you need to be hospitalized now, but this needs to be addressed relatively soon. And the discharge summary needs to be a little tighter and better than, than what we typically see. Mark, um, um, if I yeah. can interrupt here, uh, we yeah. are at time, but we're only at okay. time for those people who get the uh, CDs, because those of it, people who download this thing, we can right. go on for days and you know, right. there's no problem. So <laughs> yeah. we're going to stop here just to get Greg's wine in, and then we can yes. pick this up on the other side of that because I don't want to cut you off. So, Greg, you talk, tell us about the swill that you're selling this <laughs> month. Oh, God, Rick. Uh, again, uh, we're we're going – for the uh, middle middle price range, uh, I've had too many people, and of course now, since there's a lot of people home, since we're all locked down, um, uh, that that uh, basically have nothing better to do than drink, uh, I would try, and I've got one I want to pass along here, and that is the Black Stallion. Uh, estate, the Black Stallion Cabernet Sauvignon 2014, uh, a California wine, real body. This is this is the kind that stands up against pastas, that sort of thing. Uh, we're talking about reasonable price, and it is available where, Rick? Costco. Costco. <laughs> if it's not at Costco, I don't want it. Yeah, well, I know that. Uh, but uh, Costco really has become the largest supplier of, of wine in North America. And and I, no question I've about told it. you the, also that the largest single Costco uh, seller of wine is the one in Scottsdale, which we now go to when we were in Arizona. So listen, uh, for those of you uh, on the CD, uh, we're going to say goodbye. For those of you who are downloading um, – and streaming, uh, we're going to uh, continue with this. And uh, so, Mark, if you would. Okay, I'll, I'll rock and roll through the last few. Uh, my number five mistake that I see is a failure by the doctor with the treatment team. Uh, again, that look of adversary that I felt when I went in with my sister's situation I sense that and see that sometimes with the with the emergency medicine doctor and the nurses, the techs, the mid-levels, and, and consultants. There's just not a good mojo there. And um, it's kind of a bedside manner with coworkers, uh, something that I think people just need to work on until they master. You, know, you think about a, a quarterback – uh, in a you know on a on a successful football team, you'll often hear that they he, he'll buy 
his offensive line Rolexes. And I think that psychology transfers pretty good. And I'm not talking about Rolexes, but I'm talking about good, kind words, uh, not throwing them under the bus uh, with with patients, you know, where you're critical of a nurse or critical of a nurse practitioner and you criticize them in front of the patient or you criticize them to a patient, not good. Uh, same with the consultant. I don't know why that guy's not here yet or he won't call me back. Um, I would be a little bit more nimble in how you interact with people who can pay you back with that kind of treatment. And it can be as simple as bringing, uh, uh, you know, donuts or breakfast tacos <laughs> or something else when you come in for a shift. I mean, that's all bread on the waters that can make them really feel good about you. Uh, they've got your back. You've got their back. You help them with things. That's the momentum I think you need because, you know, you're in a mass unit sometimes. And if you're not clicking with your team, um, they're not going to go the extra mile for you. And that can make a difference. So that's a failure that I see. There, uh, I would add on to that, that if the staff does not think that you are kind or receptive to criticism, they will not tell you when you screwed up. Um, and so, you know, really nurses text, they're your eyes and ears in the department. And I don't think there's a single one of us who can say that we did not have our hides saved because somebody else noticed something and brought it to your attention. And if you're a jerk, they're not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And it just doesn't take that much to be, you know, a good team member and, and, yeah. and kind. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. I mean, you know, you got a 180 IQ and the patient's at 80. Get me, let me tell you where the great neutralizer is. And that's in the courtroom. You talk about a sphincter tightening moment. It doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter how smart you are or how you can rattle things off. You are in a different land there. And so to avoid that, ratchet it back and be kind, be nice and be just a little bit more uh, sophisticated in, in how you treat people. Um, my number sixth failure, uh, I've just kind of gone into some of the common areas that I see in the emergency room, and that is obviously the failure to admit the serious patient. Um, we can defend almost every emergency medicine case successfully when there was an admission <laughs> it's, I mean, yes, there might've been some hiccups or maybe things, you know, weren't moving super fast, but at least there was recognition that there needed to be admission. And so when I hear that I'm defending an emergency medicine doctor who admitted the patient, man, I am sticking my chest out. I'm like, bring it on. I mean, there's almost nothing else they can get me for. And if nothing else, you, you have another uh, insurance policy that's that's on the line. In You're usually not the only defendant, that's right, true. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, so the most common case is discharging the patient and something bad happens within 24 hours of that discharge. That's kind of the most common emergency medicine case, you know, the heart attack, the stroke, et cetera. So um, failures in that area. And and I can tell you that the plaintiff's attorneys do this reptile strategy. You know, what's the safest thing for the patient? They, they did uh, that to me. 
they go after the worst first, you know, why weren't you thinking worst first? I mean, they have, they have their lingo, they have their spin. Um, so I just say, you know, uh, when in doubt, um, the serious patient, um, there needs to be due consideration to admitting them. And I will give you a couple of categories, uh, babies, um, young children, um, be, be careful about sending them home when it's, when it's equivocal. Um, uh, I would say err on the side of hospitalizing, uh, the kids. Um, and you know, there's, there's other, there's other areas that are sensitive. Um, you know, burn cases, eye cases. These are cases we see as lawyers where juries have sympathy. Um, no one wants anything happening to their eyes. Um, you know, things that can really, um, uh, spin out of control. I, I've, I've met with the emergency medicine doctor recently, young guy, and he just basically kept saying something like, if this is allowed to stand, then no doctor in this country is safe or something like that. And I just wanted to say, you know, you've got to change your perspective. Um, I hear all the time, well, that's defensive medicine or, um, you know, this, this isn't going to, this is, I'm not going to stay in medicine anymore. If, if this kind of thing is allowed, you really have to change your perspective. That's not how juries view it. That's not how lay people do view it. That's not how doctors view it when they're patients. I mean, it's kind of fun to talk <laughs> to a doctor who's been a patient and not been handled very well. And all of a sudden it's like, Hey, <laughs> I can't believe how dismissive they were, or I can't believe that this didn't spark more of a, uh, of a, you know, desire for them to get to the bottom of it. They're just, they seem to be going through the motions and it's like, you know, you might be looking in the mirror there, you, you know? So, um, anyway, that's number six. Uh, number seven is a failure in promptly seeking help. So a couple of cases that jumped to mind, I remember there was a serious uh, motorcycle accident case. The guy, I mean, he was shot, you know, a hundred feet, had a horrible leg injury, went to a suburban hospital in Houston and um, clearly had a mangled leg, uh, had an had a arterial injury. And they didn't get him down to the medical center where he could have vascular surgery within within the six hour window and he lost his leg. Mm. And so, um, you know, I didn't think that the doctor had done anything wrong, but, but I would say this, if you're in that setting where the pin has been pulled on the grenade and another case that was similar to that one was a compartment syndrome case. When you have those windows of time, uh, you know, there's a six, eight hour window of time getting that patient help, whether at your facility or getting him somewhere else for help is a priority. And the thing you're going to be beat up on is not, Hey, you didn't recognize that this was a problem. It's going to be, this is a problem and you didn't care enough to get him to the place where he needed to, to be where it could be solved. Uh, you had several hours, there was way too much delay. So I would say the failure was 
the action taken after the recognition of this is compartment syndrome or this is an arterial disruption that's going to could cost this guy his limb we're going to roll right now do we have a vascular surgeon that can get in here no we don't it's a sunday then we're transferring him 30 minutes you know to downtown houston and he can uh, be operated on there yeah, and the yes great, it the takes the great plane of line is always too little too late and yeah. and the great question of the doctor is, doctor, if it was your son, where would you want him treated for this? Uh, and that's that's the ultimate question: is what would you do with your family for this kind of injury or accident? And when you can use that, the um, the jury will relate to that question. Uh, it's, it makes you vulnerable and. You know, inevitably, and, and and this happened 15 years ago, because I so I can't really remember the f- facts too deeply on the motorcycle case, but I think he was really busy. It was a busy ER. There were a lot of other patients. He had made the request. They circled back an hour later. Somebody had kind of dropped the ball on it. I'm saying make it a priority. This is this is the grenade and the pin has been pulled. It's going to explode on somebody. So, you know, stay on it. Get that unit secretary to stay on it. Did you call him again? Did you call him again? We've got to get this guy transferred. There needs to be that kind of effort and note it in the chart. I checked again. I made another call. Um, get some help. Call, call a supervisor, call a colleague, figure out what do we need to do to make this, to, to, to solve this. We've got to get him down there and give them enough time to operate. So recognizing the problem is half the battle, then taking the action to, uh, to get it solved is the other. Um, number eight, along those lines is transferring a patient to a higher level of care. I mean, if you're in a freestanding ER and a newborn comes in with a fever, they need to be transferred. Um, and look, I know that this is sensitive, but I've had a couple of emergency medicine doctors talk to me recently about pressure they have on not transferring patients who don't have insurance. Um, that is an aspect of the sausage being made that has a tremendous odor to it. And, uh, when you're talking about, you know, life and death and limb loss and other you know, permanent injuries because a transfer didn't happen because there's an insurance issue. We got to take a little bit of a step back here. And uh, that's not just to, you know, save patients. But if that type of stuff surfaces in front of a jury, you might not get out of the courtroom alive. That's not acceptable. And uh, we all know that, that kind of analysis kind of can happen, but that's when you double down and say, no, that's precisely the person who needs to be transferred. And if I need to duke it out now with somebody, I will. But your, um, your whole ability to, to work as a doctor can come into question if that was a uh, controlling uh, factor on, on whether or not to, to transfer them. Um, so... You know, last month we talked about the, you know, the delay in getting that fella out with the big hematoma, the older guy after the catheterization. Um, Once you realize that the patient needs a higher level of care, just like I said earlier with the motorcycle accident thing, you need to kind of make that a little bit of a hobby and stay on that. What is the timing of this? 
uh, we need to get this patient to, to a place that can uh, uh, perform the work that needs to be done. And you may have to get involved. You may have to make calls. And please note those. Note who you talk to. Heck, note the numbers in there. Um, I think that that can be a lifesaver for you. Um, another area which I think is a boom area to, to the young emergency medicine doctors is the ability to access information. I mean, you know, 30 years ago, you had to try to open up a 10-year edition of Rosen's or something and try to figure out what Cauda Aquinas syndrome, uh, you know, was and, and how to treat it. And now you can go to some of the up-to-date and other places where you can immediately get information that is invaluable. You can find out um, pharmaceutical contraindications. And I've been in front of the, the, the licensing boards, and they'll pull those things up on their phone. And let's say it's a medication issue. They'll pull it up on their phone and say, well, I'm looking at whatever, and it says you're not supposed to give it if they're diabetic or they're not supposed to get it if they're also getting an antidepressant or whatever it is. You should be able to do that in the emergency room and seek out that information. A failure to do that, you're going to be – confronted with that in a lawsuit or before a licensing board. And so look up the most immediate, um, hot off the presses information. You know, some doctors I deal with are just natural literature hounds. I mean, I can call them and in 30 minutes, they can send me 10 articles on something. Um, if you're not one of those, I would get better at that. I think that's where things are headed. I mean, we started this off and, and, you know, Gita talked about the propensity of, of these hired guns to testify and to testify recklessly. This thing needs to be boiled back down to science. And you've got to be able to back up what you're doing by the science. And that's captured in the most reliable literature. So get good at locating it. And if you're in the emergency room, get good at locating it on the fly. And if you need to reach out to a colleague, reach out to a colleague. But find out what those, you know, signs and symptoms are for whatever it may be that you're entertaining and then determine if the patient has it. And when they don't note it in the record, and that's going to help your lawyer a lot. Um, you are shooting your lawyer down. If you have a, uh, a, 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 a credit chart, which doesn't rule out why this isn't a super serious condition. So what you're telling us is that this has to be science and we should not inject Clorox into people who we think have COVID. Is that what you're telling me, Mark? You know what? I think I think the science is still out on that, right? Isn't that what our president said? They're looking yeah, I, into it? I think it? so. <laughs> Bless his heart. No, nobody can make faces like Dr. Fauci. I mean, he, 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 he can actually look, you could, you could read everything he's thinking just by the way he moves his eyebrows. It's funny watching those press conferences where, uh, he, he talks, you know, Trump will talk and he's what, six, four, and then Fauci will come up and he's five, four. And just the whole thing is a comedy. Yes. Um, and, and he's very bright. I, I think he's trying as hard as he can. My last thing that I just wanted to mention, uh, relates to once you're in this arena and Gita has gone through it and I'm anxious to talk to her and hear about her story. I mean, two trials, 12 years. Is that what it was? I mean, obvious. That is, uh, 
I mean, that's a, that's a long siege. Yeah. Uh, again, she was, she was 15 years old when this happened. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. She's right. very youthful. That's great. Yeah, James, right. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just would say as a person who is an advocate for the best profession and that's uh, medicine, um, help us, you know, and uh, if you haven't watched Jerry Maguire, watch that movie, but that scene where he is help me help you. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I'm saying to the doctors is help me <laughs> help you. Um, you, you got to help me in advance with some decent bedside manner and some decent records. Then when the hurricane Katrina unfortunately hits and, and it probably, it probably hits everyone at least once, no matter how good you are, but at least your records and your efforts will give me a running start and then help me by being interested. Um, I've got a doctor right now that I'm defending and he hasn't looked at the chart yet. He's a hospitalist. He saw the patient three times after a surgery and he hasn't looked at the chart yet. And we sent it to him three or four months ago. It's his first lawsuit. I know this is kind of like studying for an exam and you keep putting it off and you keep putting it off. We need him invested in this or we can't defend him. And so I would say to the emergency medicine doctors listening to this is, you know, put a put a clothespin on your nose. It's a stinky arena, but please dive in. Know these records. You are the best expert that your attorney has. You have skin in the game. Educate him. Give us some ammunition. Uh, so, you know, prepare for your deposition. You need to insist from your attorney to have a mock deposition. If you don't testify a lot, you need to, to be familiar with this arena rather than walking in cold. If there's other defendants, try to get one of them to depo be deposed first and go and watch that deposition. Meet who the players are. Watch what's happening. Listen to what the questions are and ask yourself, how would I ask the, answer those questions? Um, for trial, you should visit that courtroom. You should try to watch that judge in action, even if it's with hearings. Ask your, your lawyer, uh, please take me to one of the hearing days in, in our court. I need to see how this judge is. You don't want to learn this on the fly. It's a very stressful setting, and it's very hard on most doctors. So prepare yourself. Know things. Um, practice. Um, make it a little bit of a, a, a hobby um, or else it can eat you up and uh, and it can be very hard for your lawyer to defend you if you're not prepared. Well, Mark, anyway, we've, uh, my we've, top worked 10 list. To, we've worked you to death today. Uh, and, and Gita, you, of course, have been wonderful as always. Uh, Rick, our guests pretty much did our work today for us. Well, like actually, said we could. actually, there's one other thing. We started talking about this uh, off air last month about some doctor who wrote in and was concerned about, um, and I don't know that we're going to know uh, much about this, but we got four heads in here instead of just yeah. two. This person uh, was um, concerned about um, weapons in the emergency department and the routine searching for weapons in the emergency department on general or psychiatric complaint patients. The civil right legalities of asking patients to submit belongings and clothings as soon as they say they have something that may relate to a 
um, psychiatric complaint uh, of depression or anxiety or something to that effect where they basically become automatically a psychiatric patient, automatically are put into a room that doesn't have any hinges, automatically basically are stripped of all their possessions and taken out of the room, uh, generally thought to be in their best interest, but, but you know, maybe not. Um, they want to know if, if there are any best practices regarding these uh, issues in relevant case law. And, and honestly, nobody's really talked about this um, before. But, Mark, you're in Texas, and uh, everybody's allowed to carry a gun down there, aren't they? <laughs> Just about, you know. <laughs> I think you have to have some kind of uh, concealed handgun license, but it's not too hard to get. Um, you know, we did talk at length about it after last month's program, and uh, I I can see arguments both ways. Um, I I told you about a situation where several years ago, during the Christmas holidays, I, I had I had previously represented a social worker on a uh, a matter, and I was at the office, I think it was maybe even Christmas Eve. And she called me and she had been involuntarily committed to a psychiatric facility. And that had happened uh, by her estranged husband. And he had convinced the judge that she was a danger to herself and others. And she was despondent. And I went down there and visited her and just, and just the setting of being in a psychiatric center was deteriorating her mental health. And all we wanted to do was be able to get her out of there and get her into a different setting and then allow things to kind of play out. And it was a knockdown drag out hearing and we had to have experts and this was all done on the fly. But eventually the judge allowed her to leave and she immediately improved. So I think if you had asked me 20 years ago, I would have said, hey, if you suspect there's a gun and you're in the emergency room, throw them down, strip them naked and take whatever you want and put them in a padded room. I'm a little more sympathetic now to the, the counter arguments. I think the overarching principle in law is to be reasonable. And I think that that to me, that's what Gita said at the beginning and really got us started off in, a, in such a positive way was the idea is if you're going to testify, be reasonable. And that means being respectful. That means being wise. Um, look, it, to me, if you take a hardball approach that you never should take weapons or search for weapons and you have 14 people killed in an emergency room setting, that hasn't been worth it. I, I think we have to thread the needle here. And I think people have to be extremely, um, uh, you know, aware. I mean, it, it's like the scripture says, you know, uh, you know, wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. We don't want to hurt these people. They are very vulnerable. And so we can't have a one size fits all. But I think if the emergency medicine doctor reasonably believes that someone has a weapon and that there is a reasonable basis for thinking there could be an issue, I think you do get security involved. I think you respectfully approach them. And I think that you ask them questions or the security fella asks some questions. We're not trying to cause any trouble here, but you seem to be a little bit worked up and we're concerned because you've alluded to having something in your backpack. So we just, you know, we have a duty here to take care of people and we want to 
um, talk with you? And would you be okay if we take a look in your backpack? Um, if they're lucid and normal, they'll probably say, sure, you'll see a lunch kit in there and you can look in the lunch kit. There's a bologna sandwich. If they're not, they won't let you look in the backpack. And then I think it's, you make determinations at the time as to what's reasonable. Do we take the backpack from them? Do we just observe them? Do we put them in a room where they're kind of away from others? I mean, I think there's some reasonable steps that can be done, but to have a blanket approach of, we're going to strip you, we're going to put a open backed gown on you and, and all of that type of thing, we can push people that are fragile into a different level and that's not humane and it's not helpful. I, one of the things I've said in the last, you know, 30 years, I've noticed two things in the medical profession, you know, besides the explosion in technology. One is that the quality of the staff to me has deteriorated and the second is that the patient population is um, more um, um, mentally, uh, you know, there's more mental health issues. And we see it with the types of people who file board complaints, lawsuits, etc. So doctors nowadays are dealing with a more tricky terrain than they were in prior decades. And I think you have to be careful. But the key is acting reasonably. I don't think that you just throw people down and take you know, take their clothes off. I also think that you may have to intervene. You may have to get a six foot four, 285 pound security guy to come in and say, we need to look in your backpack or you've got something in your waistband. Would you please confirm that it's not a weapon? And if they won't do it, they may have to lay hands on them. Um, I remember the law school professor I had, Gerald Treese, who said, or James Treese, lay hands on gently. That was the rule. Lay hands on gently. So that big security guard may need to lay hands on gently, but that's after they've failed some tests here on the reasonable questions. So I guess big picture, that's how I would approach it is, is um, act in a humane, reasonable way, but don't make innocent, simplistic assumptions either way. They may well have a weapon or they may not have a weapon. And we've got to figure out pretty pretty firmly if they do have one because we're responsible for that family down the hall that could get shot right because this person loses their marbles right there in the emergency room Gita, you're at uh, brown what yes, is saying what is um what happens in are there metal detectors there or is there any kind of policies no. regarding this well yeah i mean i think that we're we're pretty um we're pretty strict, uh, I would say, about um, when patients come in and they have mental health complaints. If you really do feel like that person is at risk to themselves or to somebody else, um, there usually is a security watch involved. We definitely encourage them, um, I'll use that word, to um, to undress and to be, we have, you know, either gowns or paper scrubs or, or whatever, depending on the hospital that you're in. Um you know, and because there's really, you know, there's, we also know that um, violence against emergency department staff is a rampant problem. Um, the nurses um, are at particular risk, but emergency department staff, it's, I think it's really one of the most dangerous places to work if you look at the incurrence of workplace violence. Um, and I think that we really should have a very low um, threshold to protecting staff. It should not be at the expense of, you know, 
recklessly um, treating patients who are reasonable um, in these ways where we just sort of, you know, strip them down. And I mean, what where this tends to get, I think, really difficult is in the patients who are not reasonable, um, who are a little bit scary, uh, who are violent. And then um, we do often have to, if we if we try measures where we try to, you know, we're trying to talk them down, we're trying to reassure them, but these situations escalate very quickly. Um, and it is on the emergency department physician to take control. Like we have to own that room. We have to take control. It's our department. We have to make sure everybody in it, including the patient is safe. Um, and what typically happens in those cases is a pretty quick move to, um, to chemical sedation, um, and chemical restraint, you know, and so we try to minimize the physical restraint. We don't want to traumatize anybody. A lot of these people who are coming in are already traumatized, um, and there's definitely a lot of, you know, trauma-informed care is a very important thing that we should all be talking about. However, um, sometimes these situations really, they escalate fast and push comes to shove. And, you know, we are, you know, we're all pretty familiar with the five and two, 10 and two, ketamine, things that we need to do to get situations under control so that everyone stays safe. Um, in terms of, you know, we have a strict no weapons policy. Um we definitely um, take seriously um, looking, you know, taking people's possessions if we think that they're a risk, if there's a risk of weapons. I think that that's, you know, safety is pretty paramount. We try to be sensitive, um, as sensitive as we can. I think what you said before about, um, Mark, how you phrased it, I can't remember how you phrased it. It was very nice um, about just, you know, respecting that we don't want to hurt anybody. Um, we want to be as gentle as we can possibly be. But we have to keep the safety of that patient and um, the other patients in the department and our staff um, a a paramount concern. Um, And so sometimes there's not a way to finesse these situations as gently as we would like. Um, And most of these policies, I think, have been put into place because of the pendulum swung that way because something bad happened. Yeah. You know, in the department, somebody somebody got shot, somebody got hurt, a patient harmed themselves in the department. Um, and so, you know, sometimes the measures can seem too draconian, but um, certainly fault was found when they had more liberty and then these terrible things happened. So yeah. I, what you said about approaching every case as an individual thing is great. Hospitals definitely have policies um, about um, how patients are to be watched by security, how they are to be undressed and that sort of thing. Like those are, those are facility policies in most places um, and not really as much at the direction of the physician. Um, but you're right. Every single case has to be approached as an individual case. Let me, let me just say that to most of the people who talk about this stuff are from big university hospitals. There's 12 security people. There's this or that. The tough place to be is in a small emergency department in Upper Michigan at two in the morning when there's uh, three nurses and one doc. When you're going to do something like restrain or search, you can't half do it. Because the last thing you want to get into is a fight. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because, first of all, you can lose those fights, having done that a couple of times. Let me tell you, (laughs) it's not good. Uh, And, and, 
you know, we tend to, in this area, the bar fights, they tend to send big cops who yeah. who are do this for a living. And you know what? Big cops, when they walk in, get less trouble than than small cops. Yeah. Why? Because these yeah. people aren't totally stupid. What they know is they're going to lose some of those fights. Um, you do have an obligation to protect and defend the staff, yeah. the nurses, all these other folks. So I'm not a believer in half restraint. I agree uh, with you. You either do it or you don't, because how do you defend when they when they go crazy and hurt somebody not doing it correctly. And these are easy cases to judge in hindsight. I will say this, though, because I've given some speeches on these things. Go back and look at the Ruby Ridge highlights or the I Can't Breathe fella, oh, Eric Gardner. Gosh. Yeah. When you when you overreact right. or, when, or when you go extreme, the guy's selling cigarettes and they put him in a chokehold and he has a heart attack. I mean, are you kidding me? Right. And they, they they couldn't have gotten somebody there to talk some sense into him and basically walk him, you know, down to the jail or whatever they needed to do. It's the same thing with these situations. And I think that's what Rick and I were talking about is you can really break a human now by dehumanizing them and degrading them when it was unnecessary to do so. By the same token, you don't want him killing somebody and saying, yeah, but we, we made it soft for him and we didn't degrade him and he's taking somebody else's life. It's complicated. You have to have really good judgment. You have to be be respectful and yet wise. And if you suspect they have a weapon, you tell them, look, I, I don't want to put you in a bad position. You have to understand there are people here that are afraid. And I've got an obligation now where we need to search you. Please cooperate with us. Let's do this very, very uh, dignified. Everything's going to be okay. And if they resist and they won't agree to reasonable terms, that's a sign that you have to ratchet to another level. Mark, you just have a wonderful way with words. Oh, Um, (laughs) thank you. You know, uh, I went to... Los Angeles County USC Medical Center uh, not that long ago, and you don't get into that building without going through a metal detector. But that's right. in East Los Angeles, a lot of gangs and all this other kind of stuff. It's not the same kind of thing that you would have going into the hospital at Hogan Memorial at Newport Beach. I don't think they're going to be going through medical detectors, although I may be wrong. Hey, listen, Mark, I didn't realize that I was kind of being presumptuous and taking up your time, and the same with you, Gita, that you may have had other things to do. And we, we you notice remember, he doesn't mind taking up my time. I mean, but, and Mark, at your billable actually, rate, we're 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 way over budget here. My billable rate is pretty darn low. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I actually do have a conference call with a doctor on a on a new matter, and uh, I love talking to y'all. And what a coup it is to get to to meet Gita um, via video teleconference and. Um, Rick, email me her email so I can email her so I can talk to her some more because I'm very curious about her story. Okay, that's a wrap. We encourage your comments or questions. You can reach us at support at ccme.org. And please check our library of educational content at ccme.org. Thanks for listening and bye for now.